We're continuing in this sermon series, which we're calling Not Ashamed of the Glorious Gospel, as we look at the good news, not the good news of England's serene progress into the semi-finals of the European Championships, that's the only time I reference that, but the good news of the gospel, of what Jesus Christ has done, has accomplished for us. And we're looking at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, because we said last week, this is one of the most condensed and distilled um, kind of praises of the gospel that we get anywhere in Scripture. Not only that, but it also um, is a place where we see the gospel communicated to the global city of the first century, Rome. And so for us in our context, it gives us a handle on how we can communicate it to the gospel in our global city and how that is likely to be received. Now, we, we've called the gospel series Not Ashamed because of the way that Paul starts his introduction of the gospel. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. And we're looking at the power of God this afternoon particularly. And we said last week that he says he's not ashamed rather than saying he's confident or he rejoices in the gospel because he's presupposing that when people hear the gospel, the natural sinful human heart thinks that it's a source of shame. And Paul wants everyone to go on a journey from shame to seeing that it's glorious and honorable, from bad news, if you like, seeing that the gospel is good news. And that's the journey we're hoping we go on each week. So this week, as we look at the power of the gospel, I want us to realize that when Paul preached this to Rome, as in the same settings when we preach it today, the gospel is not received as power, but the gospel feels to start off with like weakness. Now, London, as with many cities today, is a city all about power. Did you know that London is routinely put at the top of the global city power index? That's a thing. Every year since 2008, the Maury Memorial Foundation's Institute for Urban Strategies has analyzed the relative strengths and weaknesses of the 44 best-known cities around the world. They look at different things like the ability to attract talent, to attract tourists, to attract money that the cities have, the kind of so-called magnetism of cities. And since 2018, London has been ranked as the most powerful city on the planet. Just knocking off New York. Sorry if you're from New York here today. And I suppose when you look at that, the magnetism of London, one of the questions would be, what has Jesus Christ to offer in the context of a city of global power? I mean, after all, Isaiah himself, one of the prophets of the Old Testament, describes Jesus as having no magnetism. He says, Isaiah 53, verse 1, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus Christ isn't magnetic when you first look at him. In some sense, he, he's weak. I mean, he's He's a Galilean. He's from a backwater, you know, in Judea. He's not considered strong by anybody. He was weak. But, Paul says, when you understand who he really is, when you understand his gospel truly by the work of the Spirit, it moves from weakness to power. Let's see how that is possible as we see um, three things. First of all, the nature of the, um, of the power, then the source of this power, and finally, with application, we're going to look at the effects of this power. So let's look at the nature of this power as we look at the gospel. Just study the words quite carefully in verse 16, because it's easy to gloss over and think you understand what it's saying, but it might say something different. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Notice he says that the gospel is the power of God. That's slightly different to what we often think. I think we often think that the gospel describes the power of God, 
or the gospel tells us how we get the power of God, or the gospel tells us how the power of God works. But it doesn't say that. It says it is the power of God. In other words, the gospel, as revealed in Scripture, the truth about what God has done in Jesus Christ is itself the very power of God. That is where you find the power of God. Think about it this way. When God wants to uh, create the world, he speaks, but he doesn't speak because he's describing what he's going to do. When he speaks, he creates. He says, let there be light and there's light. His words have power. They affect change. They bring about light into the universe. Think about what's going on right now. How is the universe being sustained? How are we breathing? How is everything not collapsing in on itself? Well, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says the Son of God, Jesus Christ, sustains the universe by his word of power. In other words, the word is sustaining right now. So the word creates the world. The word of God sustains the world. And the word of God is also what we need for salvation. Hebrews 4 verse 12, that the word of God is living and active Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In other words, the Word of God itself is the power of God. Not the way to describe the power of God, but itself is the Word, is the power of God. It's where the power of God is in the Word, in the Gospel. Maybe one way to think of it is think of it a little bit like this. Think of it like an acorn. The, the Greek word for power is dunamis. It's where we get dynamic from. In an acorn is all the dynamics, all the potential that's needed for it to grow into an oak tree. It just needs water, light, soil, and time. But all of the dynamics are in the acorn itself for it to grow into a full oak tree. Well, in the same way, in the gospel of Jesus Christ are all of the dynamics of the power of God. It just needs time to grow in the world or to grow in your life, and it will become the full revelation of the power of God. All of the dynamics, all of the potential is in the gospel, which is why the gospel is so important. Now, why does Paul start this way, reminding us about the power of the gospel, particularly writing to a global city? Well, I think it's because global cities are places of action, right? I mean, in London, you get judged by your actions. Words are one thing, you know, we're used to them, but really it's about what you can do, what you can effect. So imagine you went out and you're speaking to one of your colleagues or your friends or your neighbors. Maybe you're here for the first time and you're thinking, okay, so what does the church do? What does Inspire St. James do in a city where there's buildings that are so impressive, in a city where so many people are doing things, in a city where businesses are affecting change? What do you do at church? And you say, well, in Inspire St. James, our number one value is biblical preaching. And someone might scratch their head and say, Talking. I mean, that, that's what you do. You, you talk a lot. I mean, is that all you do? I mean, don't you do social action? I mean, I can understand if the church was in social action. You say, yeah, yeah, we, we do social action. We serve our community. We've been doing that over the pandemic. But that's not the main thing. The, the longing we have for our community of, as we serve them is that they would hear the gospel. They say, okay, well, you've got a building. I mean, you must be trying to develop that building. I and mean, after all, everyone's building in London now, right? Do you do any buildings? You say, well, we've got a building project, but the main focus, to be honest, of the building project is to make it easier for people to hear the gospel. Okay, well, I mean, what else do you do? Do you do events? Yeah, we do events, but the main focus of our events is to create an opportunity where people can hear the gospel. 
You see the focus. Our number one value is on biblical preaching because everything we do here is predicated on the power of God in the gospel. We want people to hear the gospel. We want to communicate the gospel. We want you in the church to discuss the gospel. We want you to learn about the gospel. The gospel is everything because that's where the power is. All those other things are good, don't get me wrong, but they're not where the power is at. The power is in the gospel. The nature of God's power is the gospel. Uh, Secondly, let's think about the source of God's power. Because this does kind of raise the question, if the power of God is in the gospel, how does that, how does that work? I mean, after all, do the kind of the mechanics of the words themselves, are they powerful? Or is the Bible kind of mystically or magically powerful such that, I don't know, you just need to have a Bible around you and things will kind of go better in your life because God's power is at work in you, a bit like having a, a battery pack there. Is that how it works? Well, I want you to notice how Paul goes about this as he unpacks the gospel, because he says elsewhere, and we're doing a thematic sermon series, so we are dotting around a bit. He says that when he went to the city of um, Thessalonica, he reminds the Thessalonians that that as he came to them, the gospel came to them not in word only, but with power and with the Spirit and with great conviction. Now, if that's the case, it must mean that it's possible for the gospel to be unpacked without power to be there. Because he says that the gospel came not in word only, but in power and in spirit and with great conviction. It must mean that the gospel needs almost something working in order for power to happen. What is that? Well, it's the source of power. And we see that in Romans 1 verses 1 to 4. As I read through, notice where the source of the power of the gospel is. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, there's the power, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, the gospel is powerful because of the source of the gospel. And what is the source of the gospel? Jesus Christ. And specifically, Jesus Christ revealed as the risen Son. He was risen from the dead with power, declared to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead with power. So it's the Son of God who's the source of the gospel's power, and specifically the fact that Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead. If you want a kind of cross-reference for this elsewhere, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, Paul prays this, that we would know... God's incomparably great power for us who believe, he says that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So the power of the gospel is related to the source of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians, him we proclaim. When we proclaim the gospel, it's about him. And what do we know about him? That he is the risen Messiah. That's where the power is. Now, why is this so important that the the gospel is about Jesus Christ and the gospel is about the risen Lord Jesus Christ? Why is that where the power is? Well, because without Jesus Christ and specifically without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel is weak. Let me take two areas to, to, to push this home for you. First of all, let's take life and death. And then secondly, let's take justification and righteousness. Life and death. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead then he lived a remarkable life, yes. He taught some wonderful things, yes. But he ultimately died on a cross just like every other human being will face death. 
And if he just died on the cross and stayed dead, there's nothing special about him. He can't offer us any meaningful life after death because death conquered him. He can't give us hope in the face of all that we're facing when we face death because he couldn't get beyond death himself. If he died, then that's it. No matter how wonderful his life, he's just another luminary of history who had his moment but then ultimately died. But if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it changes everything because it means that death has been defeated. Now, that's particularly poignant at the moment, isn't it? Because part of, I think, what we found so traumatic over the last year or year or so is the fact that for a culture that has spent so much of the last hundred years trying to avoid death, we've suddenly been confronted with death. I mean, pretty much everything in the West is geared up towards us not thinking about death. It's a taboo subject. We shouldn't talk about it. We've even redone the way that we um, configure our cities and our towns. It used to be that cemeteries were right in the center of towns and cities so that people would be able to go and see the markers of their loved ones who have died. But now we've moved them out of the cities and towns so that we don't have to think about death. If you go to a crematorium nowadays, as I do as part of my job quite a lot, they're always on the outskirts of cities because we don't want to think about it. We don't want to be confronted by death. And then we do our best to wrap death up in well-meaning, but ultimately they lack substance as platitudes, such as he or she has gone to a better place or... You know, they're looking down on you or you'll always carry them in your heart. I mean, well-intentioned, no doubt. Sincere. But they lack substance. And so for a culture that's lived like that, the last year or so has been every day. All we've heard about is death. Death, death, the death rates. The curve showing the deaths in hospital. Comparisons between countries on who's having more deaths and who's doing better at managing the pandemic. Information letting you know about the generation you're in and therefore how likely it is that you're at risk of death. And so we're not prepared for it. And I think the result for us has been traumatic because we're just not ready to be confronted with the great reality we spend so much of our time and effort avoiding. But here's the thing. What if we didn't need to avoid it? What if we could look the, the most painful thing about our human existence, the reality of our death, full bore in the face and say, I'm not scared anymore. I don't need to avoid it anymore. I will die. It's certain. Death's got a pretty good track record. One from one people always die. But actually, as I face death and as I confront my own mortality and the uncertainty around me in these times, I know that Jesus Christ has died, but he rose again. And therefore, death is not the end. Death doesn't have a hold on him, and it won't have a hold on me if I trust in him. There is life beyond the grave. How do I know? Because Jesus has been there and back, and he's never going to die again. Therefore, life wins. Light conquers darkness. There is a new dawn, and you can hope in that. Oh, friends, our culture is crying out for that message today. And it starts to ease the pain of the pandemic if we can give them that hope. Death life in the face of death. Second, the area where Jesus' resurrection makes such a difference is in this area of justification. That is, to know that we are right with God. We all have a, a feeling that we long to be right with God. Often we frame it as, I just don't feel right within myself, but that's because we know there's a gap between the real and the ideal, and so we long to try to bridge that gap. But again, if Jesus Christ just died on the cross, even though he said he was dying for our sins, if he's not risen again, it doesn't do anything. 
Uh, think of it like this. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine you saw someone drowning awfully um, in, a, in a river, and then a well-meaning passerby who is not a strong swimmer dived in to save them. I mean, that's a wonderful heroic act. But if they're not a strong swimmer, they too will be overcome by the torrent, overcome by the river. And so you have now a double tragedy, not only the first person dying, but now also the well-intended, sacrificial person who dives in, but who can't ultimately swim strong enough to get them out. Well, so what do you think happens on the cross? When Jesus Christ dies on the cross and he says, I'm dying for the sins of all the world. But if he just dies on the cross and doesn't rise new life, he's no better than a passerby who dives into the torrents but can't save the other person because they can't save themselves. But what if we tweak the illustration? This time someone's struggling and the torrents are overflowing and they're, they're risk of drowning and then a strong swimmer comes along a lifeguard, someone who can overcome the torrent, and they dive in, and for a moment you're not sure what's going on, it's all a bit messy, but then you suddenly see them emerging out of the banks of the river and dragging the other person with them to safety. You see, if they emerge out of the torrents, then it proves that they are not only able to save themselves, but also save the other person who is in need. So it is with Jesus Christ. My friends, he sees you drowning, if I can put it this way, in your sin, that is your moral failures before a holy God. He sees you overwhelmed by the torrents of God's judgment. That's God's righteous, settled anger at everything you've done wrong. He knows that it will overcome you sooner or later, that you're barely keeping your head above water, that ultimately you will drown. But he dives into the midst of it. And for a moment on the cross as it dies, all looks hopeless. But then on Easter Sunday, he rises to new life, showing that he has overcome the cross. He's overcome the judgment and the torrents of God's anger at sin, that he's paid it, and now he's able to drag you out because he was over to, able to overcome it. So you are now safe, and he is now safe. And that's what it says in Romans, as it says in verse, chapter 4, verse 25, Jesus Christ was delivered over to death for our sins, but was raised to life for our justification. Sometimes you look in the mirror and you think, oh, how can I be forgiven? You know, I know often sometimes when Mark and I are talking to people pastorally, it's one of the great concerns they have. How do you really know that you're forgiven? I, particularly people with tender consciences. You say, well, you don't know what I've done or you don't know what I've done this week. Well, it's because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. It proves that he was able to drag you to safety out of the torrents of God's um, justice and anger at your sin. And if he's taken you to safety, you can trust that if you're trusting in him, you're forgiven. You are justified. The source of the gospel's power is the fact that Jesus Christ died but rose again. And as he rose in power, so he vindicates his work. So the nature of the power, the source of the power, now let's look finally at the effect of this power. First of all, I want us to see the global effect of this power and then the personal effect of this power. Paul is really keen in a global city to emphasize the global effect of the gospel power. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. Through him, that is Jesus Christ, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles, all the nations, that is, to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And verse 8, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Already when Paul is writing this letter, the faith in the gospel is starting to reverberate around the world. 
And this is just written you know, towards the end of AD 50, AD 57 or so. So if that's written then, now think of what we know 2,000 years on. Christianity is the most numerous religion across the world. Christianity is the most globally diverse and distributed religion across the world. Here in this city of London, which is this global city, Christianity is growing year on year as more and more people believe the gospel. And Paul said it then, but he kind of was speaking by faith, but we see it today. It's a global gospel. Why? Because Jesus Christ is a global Lord, because he's risen from the dead. And if that's the case, that means that we need to be invested in sharing this gospel. If you're here today and you're a guest, this is why we long for you to be here, so you can hear this gospel. Because this is the gospel that is for all people. It's not just a Western gospel. It didn't start in the West, and it hasn't ended in the West. It's the most globally distributed gospel good news. It's for all people. And so we need to be about sharing the gospel. Can I say, particularly in the next six to 12 months, Pastor Tim Keller in New York said that on the back of September the 11th um, attacks, there was about a six to 12 month window when there was a kind of particular openness for people to exploring issues of faith and hearing the gospel. After six to 12 months, it was kind of like a bungee cord and it snapped back to people's slightly more, you know, ingrained apathy and lack of spiritual hunger. And I I wonder if we're going to face the same. We've got about six to 12 months, particularly, to really focus on sharing the gospel. And we've got this global gospel to share. I guess the question for us is, will we? There was a study done in the US by the Barna Group back in 2019, and I haven't found a comparative study that gives us the information in the UK, but I think it translates to our context. And it found that 94% of the younger generation, so millennials, you know, believe that the best thing that could happen to anyone is to believe in Jesus. 94% believe the best thing that could happen to anyone is to believe in Jesus. And 86% of that younger generation, and it's probably you here today, believe that they're equipped to share their faith. In other words, people want people to know Jesus. They're equipped to help people to share Jesus. But interestingly, half of those interviewed believe that it's wrong to share their faith with others. Isn't that striking? 94% want people to believe in Jesus. 86% believe they're equipped to share their faith in Jesus. But half of them believe it's wrong to share their faith in Jesus. Why is that? The main reason that was given was that they said, if someone disagrees with you today, like is sometimes apt to happen where you share the gospel, they believe that they are judging you and therefore you should not share the gospel with them. In other words, that fear of being judged by other people was overwhelmingly the reason why people didn't share their faith, even though they want people to come to know Jesus. I wonder if that resonates with you. Interestingly, 40% you know, said that that was their main fear, but if you take a generation that's a couple older, the baby boomer generation, that's broadly you know, kind of parents, then only 9% of them had that fear. So the main reason it seems that people don't share their faith today in the younger generations is fear of being judged. Well, what will overcome that? I think the only thing that's going to overcome that is if you realize the power of the gospel and the fact that it's a global gospel. Because I can tell you the places around the world where the gospel is growing the most is generally where you get far worse than being judged if you share the gospel. Think of in China, think of Iran, think of places on the fringes in Muslim-majority countries, you get far worse. And the gospel grew in the context of the first century in precisely the conditions where it was hard to share the gospel. You would lose more than your friendships and the respect of your colleagues. You might lose your houses, 
You might lose your possessions. You might get imprisoned. You might even lose your life. But the Christians then shared the gospel. Why? Because they believed the power of the gospel was such and the importance of the gospel was such that even if they lost all those things, that it had to be shared. And even if they lost all those things, they would get the resurrection from the dead anyway. So what's the worst that can happen? Friends, I think we've got to inhabit that. And I'm not trivializing for a moment the pain you might feel when a friend cold shoulders you. Or when you do get, I can't believe you're one of those Christians. I was at a kind of um, social reception about a couple of years ago before the pandemic, and I started chatting to someone, and they said, oh, what do you do for a job? And I said, I'm a vicar, and we chatted a little bit more. And after about two minutes or so of chatting, she said, oh, you seem so nice. You know, I'm really relieved. Because when we first started chatting, I was worried you were one of those Christians. And I said, what do you mean, one of those Christians? She said, you know, one of those Christians that really believes is true and that believes that you want to share the message of Jesus with everybody and believes things like being pro-life. And I just realized, and what, what do you say? Then I had to create the stink in the conversation. I said, I'm probably not the caricature, but I am one of those Christians. And I kid you not, she looked at me in the face and she said, I want to move on from this conversation and then just moved away. And it was painful. I was standing alone and I just felt like completely cold-shouldered. But you've got to be prepared to risk that if you want to share the gospel. And not everyone responds that way. That's as much about her insecurities as anybody else's. But we've got to share the gospel. The global effects of the gospel. Secondly, the disorienting effect of its power in our lives. When the gospel starts to take root in our lives, one of the surest signs it's at work in us is that it feels disorienting. And I mention that because I wonder if a lot of you and a lot of us, when we feel the gospel at work in our lives, pull back because it starts to feel too uncomfortable, too strange. There was a wonderful story that I read a while back in the news about a conservationist who was swimming with humpback whales. And in one instant that completely flummoxed her, the humpback whale suddenly started bumping up against her and trying to roll her onto its back. And she was absolutely terrified because this massive animal was bumping her and moving around and she couldn't get away and this went on for 15 or 20 minutes and she had no idea what was going on and then she caught out of the corner of eye a glimpse of a great white shark in the water and she realized what the whale was doing it was protecting her but this huge animal the power of this animal made her feel totally overwhelmed for 15 20 minutes and very uncomfortable even though it was doing good what do you think it's like if the power of god starts to work in your life the power of, work, of God at work in your life will feel uncomfortable because you don't always know what he's doing. There may be sins he wants to deal with. There may be idols he needs to prize your hand off. There may be things he's trying to protect you from. And you don't always know what those are. And almost the surest sign that the power of the gospel is at work in your life is that it's uncomfortable. The people I worry most about as a pastor are those who are comfortable, who've seen it all before, who know the Christian life, nothing uncomfortable for them, all safe. Because the surest sign that God's at work in your life is it does not feel safe. It feels uncomfortable. It feels disorienting. It feels like you're being bumped onto your back and you don't know why. And so friends, if that's you right now in a particular area, don't draw back from God. Don't draw back from the gospel. Embrace it. It means he's at work in your life. It means that the power is being unleashed. It means that you're being changed. That's exactly what the gospel is here to do. So preach the gospel, share the gospel, meditate on the gospel, live the gospel, because the gospel is the power of God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we want to pray that the gospel would be at work in our lives and at work here in our church 
and we long, Lord God, that it be at work in the community and in the wider city of London. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we might trust this powerful gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, to be at work, and by your Spirit you would empower and be at work through us and out wider than that. And Lord, help us to have confidence to share this gospel and also to live it out in our lives, even when that feels disorienting. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.